invite you to turn in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians. You'll find our main text in the bulletin. If you don't have a copy of the Scriptures with you, there is a Bible in front of you in the pew as well. 1 Thessalonians to chapter 5. Now, for two weeks, we have been looking in 1 Thessalonians at the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And this week, we'll see that the apostle returns to the idea of what it means to walk in a way which is pleasing to God. And in particular tonight, we're going to see that that involves how we relate to certain people in the church, to people that are described in this text as overseers, or which in other places are described as pastors or elders in the church, Shortly before the service began tonight, someone asked me if I feel uncomfortable preaching a text which calls the congregation or even people in my own family to show reverence or to submit and respect overseers in the church because that can seem self-serving. And I will say at times like this, it's especially comforting to work through a book of the Bible and to not have selected this at random or because of some circumstance going on in the life of the church. That's very comforting. That's one of the advantages. And yet, even if that weren't the case, I don't believe that ministers should be embarrassed, ashamed, to hold forth anything in the word if we believe that these things are for our good. It is not for my good. It is for our good that Christ has revealed whatever he has. So let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've gathered us here this night. Whether we fully grasp it, yet it is true that your Holy Spirit worked all the circumstances together, not just of this day, but of our lives leading up to it, that we should be present here to receive from your word. And we ask that through this time together, you would be glorified as your people come to a greater understanding or to a fresh remembrance of what you have instituted for your church that we would be once again reminded and affirmed in your goodness, your kindness and mercy to structure things as you have, that through the means of officers in the body, you have for thousands of years been ministering salvation and sanctification to the world. We ask that you would please glorify yourself in our response of faith. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to notice, first of all, a single word in verse 12, the word by which Paul addresses these Thessalonian Christians. Verse 12, he says, we ask you, brothers, and do not simply pass by that word as though it were so familiar, because in its own time, this would have been a surprising word. And yet it occurs over and over again, not only in this epistle, but throughout the New Testament, 19 times in this one tiny letter, 
the apostle refers to believers as brothers. And he's using this in a gathered way, speaking both of male and female, young and old, rich and poor, of all ethnicities, together in the Lord. Appreciate for a moment, Paul was a Jew at a time when Jews did not mingle with Gentiles. And he's speaking to a congregation largely composed of Gentiles. And he calls them his brothers. He refers to them according to this fraternal, this tender, this warm bond. And then you think who's gathered in that body, people again, who are wealthy and others who are very poor. When you think about the mission work of the church that's laid out to us in the book of Acts, it is certainly a work of God that is gathering people who are not like one another. You go back to the book of Genesis, you read the story of the Tower of Babel, and you have the world trying to form a kind of unity, a kind of fraternity, a brotherhood, but it's one that is devoid of knowing the Lord, and the consequence for their own protection, the Lord separates them out. And yet in the very next chapter, what does the Lord do? He calls one person, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. God's point in sending them out from Babel was not to disperse and to destroy all, but to provide the true way up, the real ascent, and that through Zion, what God does with Abraham, he sends him to a mountain. He says, I'm going to show you a mountain. And it turns out to be the very mountain on which Jesus Christ himself a long time later, will be crucified, in which Abraham, by a picture, offers Isaac. And so God's purpose, even from back then, is not to only have one kind of people, but to gather of all the nations, all ethnicities, a true family. It should not be lost on us, this sense that what the church is, is a durable, lasting, true family. And so it should be appropriate, it shouldn't be something that feels tired and worn out, that we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. That's not just Christianese, that is Christianity. We are brothers and sisters. In that sense, you are more truly united with some Christian living in a completely different kind of culture on the other side of the world, if their faith is in Christ, than you are if you have a blood sibling who doesn't know and is at enmity with the Lord. Brothers. And yet there is a danger. And the danger is for our understanding of unity through Christ, for that to erase or press down the sense that there are also differences in the body, too, that are very important. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 the apostle mentions the unity that we have in Christ. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Holy Spirit. And so there is unity. But there's also difference, because in that same passage in 1 Corinthians, he adds, all of these members of these people who belong to the body are, quote, empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God determined what your gifts are. You can aspire to certain gifts and pray the Lord may give them to you, but God has determined. He is sovereign. 
And in this life, sometimes he places one person in a seemingly lower position and another person in a seemingly higher position. Thank God he will repay according to faithfulness, not according to a parent standing in this life. And so I expect that many who felt and thought they were doorstops will in fact be really in positions of great privilege and joy and glory. But we can't lose sight of that because the Lord has not decreed that all believers would be functionally equal, that they would all have the same responsibilities and roles. In our own passage here, the apostle, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, mentions certain people who are over you in the Lord. In our democratizing, individualistic age, that does make some people bristle, and it makes even more people just uncomfortable. The idea that anyone would dare to say that they are over other people, especially in a voluntary society, so to speak, like the church. And yet there it is. Certain people are over you in the Lord. The word, it's a single word, overseers. It has a background. I know this is familiar to some of us, and yet we need to be reminded and checked to appreciate that we understand and embrace the origin of this structure we're talking about, that there are overseers in the church. And then think of the young here. The Lord may be laying before some for the first time really to understand this thing we come to on the Lord's Day, we didn't make it up. This is not our idea, nor is it our thing to play with and change at will. God has given us an order. The Bible tells us that Shortly before Jesus ascended to the right hand of God the Father, he as king being vested with all authority and power, appointed apostles and charged them to set everything in order for what would turn out to be thousands of years. And part of that was a laying a structure to govern the organic body of Christ. It says in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, the apostles quote, ordained elders in every local church. Now, when it says elders there, the word, the Greek term, I would contend has more to do with the activity than a title. The activity, the word that's used there, describes somebody who's an overseer, a manager, or a leader. But we recognize two distinct offices, that of the ruling elder and then that of the elder, the leader in the church, who is vocationally set aside to teach. And yet, when it says that he ordained elders, the apostles ordained elders in every church, it's talking about both of those groups of people, pastors and what we usually in English call elders. And then in turn, they were entrusted with power to successively ordain others to that role. Here together with me, these passages, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul charges a young pastor, Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Or Titus, another pastor, is told in Titus chapter 1-5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town that I directed you. Titus and Timothy were not apostles, and yet, together with those churches, there was authority to appoint elders. And the fact that Paul says, put what remains into order, appointing elders, means a body of believers without overseers is disordered. It is not God's will. And yet there are perhaps 
hundreds of thousands of professing Christians in our country who gather together informally but have no existing relationship to the order that is described in the word. And there's the temptation in the church to do that, to leave as soon as things get messy or difficult. And yet this is the structure that is shown to us. Now, the way that comes about, you can find other passages in Scripture that give us the understanding. It comes with the consent of the body. It's not just one elder decides, I'm going to make that guy an elder, and then he does it. You find this in Acts chapter 13, that when Barnabas is set aside and ordained, it says that the whole church did this together. So it's not just one person going out there and choosing who will be an elder. Following the apostles, this comes with a plurality who make this decision. And yet, very important, where this occurs in accordance with the word, you are to receive it in faith as the revealed will of God. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is speaking with a group of Ephesian elders gathered on the beach as Paul himself is about to leave, probably never to see them again. And he says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Paul receives their ordination as the will of the Holy Spirit. And there's a tension that we live with. We can't see with God's eyes the secret things. He calls us to interact with the visible church as it can be known and to receive that. And so why do I belabor this at the outset of this sermon? It is to lay a kind of groundwork for this. In this passage, we're called to relate to these overseers in a particular way. The Holy Spirit has laid before us a clear obligation to do so. It's not up for grabs. And yet we'll see that when we do that, it pleases God. It's part of that walk which brings him delight. And it delights him because it's good for the body and for the world. As we consider this text, we're going to look at it under two main headings, two simple ideas. First, we're going to spend really the majority of our time looking simply at the work of an overseer simply at the work of an overseer, and then we are going to meditate, by way of conclusion, on the response that we should have. Either one of those could be spun out far longer, and it is not the purpose of this sermon to be exhaustive, but by God's help to bring us back to a sense of appreciation for what the elders are called to. Think for a moment, if you were to take a pen and write out a list what comes to mind? What are the most underappreciated jobs? I would not be surprised if many of us think immediately of our own job, whatever it is. And the reason why you might feel that way is because you are familiar with your job. And others don't know aspects of your work that are very challenging. But one of the common answers that come up in surveys throughout our country is the job of a school bus driver. And that's not surprising. They're underappreciated in the first place because a lot of people think, well, how hard can it be to drive a bus? But then you really think about the job, and there's a lack, I, I learned, there's a lack of school bus drivers. There's a shortage of school bus drivers. They are overworked because there are not enough people who meet the qualifications. You need a completely clean record in the first place if you're going to be responsible for these kids. You have to be able to maneuver a large vehicle in all weather conditions. And then on top of that, you have to be able to manage conflict. If a fight breaks out, as did on my bus, 
when I was a kid, seemed like every other day, and the school bus driver is having to drive the bus and figure out what's going on back there and not crash. And then there has to be not just resolving these conflicts, taking care of that, but navigating any kind of unforeseen obstacle. And then you have to be totally rock-solid, reliable every time. Can't be late. When you start thinking about it, you go, oh, I guess they, that is a job we should appreciate, that people are willing to do this for years, often for low pay. Look what it says in verse 12. Respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. The word respect here is not identical to our English term. Our English term is a good one, but every language has its limitations. The word used here in Greek, it's a respect which comes through an understanding. It's not mindless respect. It's an understanding appreciation. It's difficult to respect the calling of pastors and elders if you don't grasp what they do, or at least what they are called to do. And so we'll spend, as I said, the majority of our time reflecting on the work given to pastors and elders. Look with me at verse 12. See the word it uses to describe their work. It describes it as labor. But the literal term means something strenuous, arduous, sometimes tedious. It's not simply an office. It's not just a title. It's not an empty room in a corporate building that's there if you, know, you ever want to go to it. Just this past week, I learned that General Marshall in World War II, even after he long after he had been in active service, he was entitled perpetually by virtue of his rank to an empty office in the Pentagon. Until he died, he had this empty office, but no more was actually expected of him. That is not this word, labor. Which means that although different elders and pastors, according to their gifts, according to the work that they have in their common vocation, will be able at different amounts to labor, Yet, if they are faithful, it will put an additional strain upon them. And then think about what that work is. It's presented in the Bible by a whole variety of metaphors. The metaphors really say a lot. A picture can be worth a thousand words. And think about the pictures that the Bible uses for the work of an elder or a pastor. The Bible describes the church as the flock of God. If the church is a flock, if we are all together sheep, then the pastors and the elders are under shepherds. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. It's notable that it even says among you, and in our passage tonight it says among you, because the work of the elder properly, the authority extends over a local body. And it may be tempting for a pastor to think primarily of serving some other flock out there, especially in the age of the internet. These things are recorded, put online, and yet the labors are local. That is the principal seat of work. And so the pastor and the elder as a shepherd has a duty in Christ to nourish, think of the sheep there, to nourish them with the milk of the word, has a duty to go out and find the ones who are straying, to seek the ones who are lost, to bind up those who are wounded. 
The work of the pastor and the elders described in Ezekiel is that of a watchman because the church is the city of God. And so a faithful pastor or elder is on alert to defend the people of God from any number of arrows and enemies. The church is described in 1 Peter 4.17 as the household of God. If the church is the household of God, then a pastor, an elder, is a wise steward. That is what they aim for. They must aim for. Which means managing the resources of the church, spiritually foremost. Making sure that all the needs of the children, so to speak, are being met. As a building and a temple is one of the metaphors used of the church, then pastors and elders are wise builders. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says that they are to build upon one foundation and to be careful what materials they build with. I wonder sometimes about that, whether or not we fully appreciate that it is not a maintenance ministry merely. Pastors and elders are not just maintenance workers of the church who go around and make sure there's no cracks, but they are building building stone upon stone, and the stones are human lives. We're described in that way, each one being another block on the temple of God. But then look with me at verse 12 again, and you'll see that Paul singles out one particular activity. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Admonish you. The word admonish here means basically to deal with, to confront errors of doctrine and of conduct, basically to deal with sin in the church, to speak frankly, to hold accountable. Why does the apostle single this out? Why of all the things that we just saw, they do, I mean really the list of things pastors and elders could be doing, is very long, why does he single out those who admonish you? How come that is a descriptor of their work? It's not any one of a number of reasons. It's not because that's their preferred work. In fact, if there is a person who seems excited for that aspect of the work, perhaps they should not be an elder or a pastor. Why? Why is this singled out? Who admonish you? And notice it doesn't say who admonished somebody else. It presents it as though at some point all Christians need some admonishing. It's not because it's the principal use of their time, I thank God, at least not in this church. The majority of our time is not spent on this. It's not because it is, in one sense, the most important thing they do. It's not the same as proclaiming the gospel. I think, very simply, it's because as he is calling them to respect and esteem, admonishing is that area of their duty where they are least likely to receive due respect and esteem. Many people love and appreciate their pastors and elders until they find themselves on the opposite end of admonishment. It has been the experience, I imagine, of every elder in this church that very occasionally... Persons with whom they seem to get along so well when finally confronted over a clear need, they found that person to be quite aggressive or quite 
Well, just setting aside all sense of authority in the church. And so it makes sense that he would focus here. And this is why we need to bear in mind another metaphor. In fact, the metaphor that I began the service with, the song All Authority and Power, has to do with Christ's kingship. He is a king over a kingdom, and the church is the kingdom of God. There is one church throughout the cosmos, one people of God, and yet locally the kingdom manifests, Christ's reign manifests in and through the body. And if that's the case, if Christ's church is a spiritual kingdom, then that means that pastors and elders are not only ambassadors who herald the gospel of reconciliation with the king, but they are also the formal agents whom he has put into a position to correct and to ensure that there is order and discipline in the church. I don't ask that you turn to any number of passages, but I am going to mention a number of passages, and I commend them to you in all seriousness for study. Some of them I know are familiar to many of you, to others of you. You are called to be Bereans. You are called to be students of the word. And far more could be said than could ever be said simply on the Lord's Day in the context of sermons. But I commend to you Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 16, only one verse to bear in mind, Paul, or Christ is speaking to his chosen representatives. He says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does that mean? Historically, Christians, and in particular the Protestant and the Reformed tradition have recognized that passage to be talking about this. Christ, through his chosen officers, has ordained a power, a right, to make binding pronouncements in accordance with the word. Pastors don't bring those states into being, per se. They are the means by which the truth is made known or is understood to be made known. When they make a pronouncement concerning discipline, if it is in accordance with the word, we are to understand that as God's verdict in the situation. Matthew chapter 18 is the second passage that I mentioned. Matthew 18 lays out the formal process for discipline in the church. Every young person in this church should become familiar. Because discipline isn't something simply that the elders and the pastors, the overseers do. It's something which ideally occurs way before it ever have to go to that point. In fact, the vast majority of discipline in the church is simply discipleship. It's the constant rubbing of steel against steel, of holding one another accountable so that things don't come to need such severe correction. But Matthew 18 lays out the process, basically, for a person who's aware that another's in sin to go to them first, to confront them, if that person in sin doesn't respond, then bring another person. If that person still doesn't respond, then bring another and then bring it to the church. And there, by church, it means to the elders, the representatives of the church. And then Jesus says, if that person still doesn't respond, let them be to you as a tax collector, as a sinner. In other words, you can't acknowledge them as having a credible claim of belonging to Christ's church. I'm aware that that is so contrary to the spirit of the age that we live in. How dare you tell me I'm not a Christian? 
I'm not telling you that I know that you don't know the Lord. I'm not telling you that I've seen into your heart and that I know that you're regenerate or not. But when the officers of the church practice discipline all the way through to that point which we call excommunication, we are telling the rest of the church with the authority of God, we are not to regard this person as a believer. We hope that they are. We pray for their repentance. Our own catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the forms that this church uses to summarize its beliefs from the Bible, describes this process in Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 85. Hear what it says, and I read this in part to say that this didn't fall out of the sky. This has been the conviction of the church for 2,000 years. Though discipline as a practice has almost entirely fallen by the wayside. How did that happen? How did something so clear in Scripture get the boot from a bunch of people who call themselves the leaders of the church, the pastors? There is a sense in which, brothers and sisters, you should have a holy anger about that. Because whatever Christ did, he did it for our good. And whoever would take it away, instigated by the devil himself, has a plan to destroy and to kill. How does it happen? It happens in part, I would imagine, just practically, when a church becomes so huge, when a church becomes so huge, it becomes harder and harder for us to deal as a small community and to address sin without fear of lawsuit and bitterness and all of that. That doesn't mean churches can't and shouldn't grow larger, but it does mean it becomes harder. It happens when people develop an idea that the church exists for them as a consuming experience. They come to get what they desire from it and then to leave. Who would want to, can you, can you imagine if Costco or your gym, where you have a different kind of membership, try to exercise discipline, where they make it public, your sin? Well, we would want nothing to do with that. We'd cancel it right away. I have nothing to do with that. But this is laid out for us as a truth. And so what have we confessed as a people? Hear this summary, and I will acknowledge before you, the catechism here is, uh, it's dense. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by Christian discipline? The answer, according to the command of Christ. Those who, though called Christians, profess unchristian teachings or live unchristian lives, and who, after repeated personal and loving admonitions, refuse to abandon their errors and evil ways, and who, after being reported to the church, that is, to those ordained by the church for that purpose, yet fail to respond also to the church's admonitions, such persons the church excludes from the Christian community by withholding the sacraments from them, and God also excludes them from the kingdom of Christ. Such persons, when promising and demonstrating genuine reform, are received again as members of Christ and of his church. It's important to appreciate that what we find in Scripture, this authority was not just given to the apostles. Somebody could want to say, well, the apostles knew and could exercise that kind of thing. But 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle himself charges the church in Corinth. He says, in effect, how dare you not practice this? He says, are you not arrogant? 1 Corinthians 5, and then he says, 
when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, bear in mind that assembly there, it's referring to this. The terms used for the church, ecclesia and synagogue, they basically both mean formal gatherings, not just, discipline doesn't just happen behind closed doors. When it gets to this point, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And there in a word you have two sides of this. It's for the, the person in unrepentant sin. And it's a severe measure. The final remedy to try to bring them back. To send a signal from everyone that they have known, trusted, and loved for years. We are scared for you. If you continue in this course, we cannot believe with any good reason, that you do know Christ. It's a message of love calling them back. And it does make you wonder how many people at churches that don't practice, and I use church loosely, how many people at churches that do not practice discipline, humanly speaking, were cut loose when they sinned or left to do their thing who we might hope would have been brought back through discipline. But then the other side, it says, as we saw, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of open, unrepentant, high-handed sin in a congregation eventually fills all with its influence. And so it's not just for that person. It's a protective means that Christ has appointed, lest the whole body should become corrupt. I tell you with a weight, it gives me no pleasure to say this. But what if it were the case that this church felt the need, the conviction in accordance with the word to practice discipline and 30% of the church was offended and left? 40, 50, 60, 70. Should the pastors and elders not do it? And yet I tell you as a truth and you know it, at many churches throughout our country and perhaps in the whole world, if they did practice discipline this day, if they tried to reinstitute the practice, that would happen. Why would those people, though, in that church be so offended at something laid out in Scripture? It would call into question whether or not they desired to walk in a way pleasing to God or to have the consolations that come through the ministrations of the church without the actual power of the Spirit. And so we've seen something of the work and some of the hard work involved. In a word, it's, it's broad and it's burdensome. But with some sense of this calling that is upon them, the Lord calls us to respond. And see with me, by way of conclusion, what we're called to do. How are we called to respond? We see verse 12 and 13, two different ways. Verse 12 says, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. To respect the means to recognize, to affirm, to acknowledge the position which God has given them. Principally for their work. It doesn't mean that you admire every aspect of that person, and it doesn't mean that you approve of every single decision made if it's against the word. If this were a different sermon, well, there are other passages of the Bible that say that if an elder or a pastor is continuing in sin, rebuke him publicly before all in order that all may fear. 
Pastors get their comeuppance too. But this is not that text. And to want this to be that text and to sideline our duty so that we can focus on the exception to the rule would not be right. We are called to respect, as it says in Hebrews 13, verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your church leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How real is that? Let them do it with joy, not with groaning. Paul knew that because he had groaned. There were some situations that were real groaners, and elders deal with that. And yet we are called as much as we can, God helping us to respect and to submit to everything which is godly and everything which is indifferent. And then verse 13, esteem them very highly in love. That means not just to respect that they have that position, to appreciate, to celebrate that position, not in coldness, but in love. What will bring us to that love? I think foremost is by believing, by coming back to a belief that Christ who reigns, though not present bodily, yet by his Holy Spirit truly is at work through these people. To love your pastors and elders in the right way requires a far more spiritual view of the church. Not simply to admire the way that they organize community and get good things done. And it's The world can appreciate activity and busyness. But the love that we're called to is a love in Christ that sees and believes Christ is reaching through them into our lives and caring about us. Christ, our King, has appointed these people, imperfect, weak vessels, and they know it, to minister to us the things of the Lord. Ephesians 4.11 puts it this way. Jesus gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's why he gave shepherds and teachers in the church, so that we might all attain to full maturity and the fullness of God in Christ. Couldn't he have used angels if he wanted to? Couldn't he have chosen some other means? Sure, he could have, had that been his wisdom. But here we submit to the wisdom of God. A pastor, a late pastor from the 1800s, Charles Bridges, wrote a book called The Christian Ministry. If you want some somewhat challenging but really edifying reading, that would be a great book. The Christian Ministry by Charles Bridges. And he says, it is not our province or our place to prescribe what God might have done. It is our place to mark the consummate or the complete wisdom of what he has done and to exercise the humility of faith when we cannot discern the reasons of his dispensation. Sometimes I think about that. I think, this is your way? That a few local individuals in each little pocket of church, that they make these tremendous heavy judgment calls. 
Wouldn't it be better if there was just one person of the whole church in the world, one person with a tall hat who made final decisions for everybody? One of the human reasons says yes, that that would be better. But his wisdom in setting elders over each local church, and as you see in Acts chapter 15, that when they need to make a decision, they all come together and they make a decision together as elders and apostles. Even the apostles in Acts 15 submit to the nature of the office of the elders there. This is God's wisdom to clip our wings, to keep it close. And he does that as a way of ministering to us the blessings of the gospel. I want you to think about this for one last moment. In your own personal life, where would you be without any of the pastors or elders who had ever been? Just take them out of the equation. Whether they were ones you met, whether they were the ones that whose books you read or sermons you heard, all the elders who came alongside of you. I think about one particular time when I had just come to, to the gospel and I'd begun attending a church and I had a flat tire. I had never had a flat tire before. I was 20 years old. And an elder called me. He did, picked up on the cell phone and said, hey, what's going on? I didn't know this whole elder thing of elders who were actually involved. Hey, what's going on? I told him I got a flat tire. And he said, oh, I'll come over. And he changed my tire, and he brought a seven-year-old son and showed him how to, he pretended like he was teaching the son. I think the son knew already, but he was actually teaching me. And then he stuck around, and he asked how I was doing spiritually, and I had just come to faith, and I was not a member of that church either. He was a shepherd. He was looking for the sheep. He had his eyes peeled. Who needs to be brought in? Who needs to be fed? Who needs to be grown up? May God help us to appreciate this work and place to correct those who deviate if a pastor or elder should do so, but not to let those faults, those failures, ruin our love of what Christ has done. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is good and you are faithful. Oh, Lord, we abhor those instances where faults, sins, and mistakes of the overseers of the church have alienated and offended and harmed. And yet you knew when you put these things in order that all would work together for your purpose. We thank you that in spite of ourselves, you have preserved the visible church for 2,000 years and that you continue to raise up godly men and to fit them for a work of which the apostle says, who is sufficient for these things? We ask that you help us to pray for one another, to encourage those who take on this mantle, to be understanding, to be respectful. Lord, we thank you for your kindness and showing us an image of the work of Christ, our shepherd, in them. For in Jesus' precious name, God's people pray. Amen.